Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Dr. Christina Delos Reyes who's the Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Addiction at the University Hospital's Case Medical Center. Doctor, welcome. Thank you. Dr. Reyes has over 20 years of experience as an MD and specialist in the field of addiction psychiatry. Doctor, can you share with us how you happen to get into the field of addiction treatment and recovery and psychiatry? Sure. When I was in medical school as a first-year student, I happened to get elected to a group of my peers that actually helped other medical students who had problems with drugs and alcohol. And I just found it very fascinating that doctors themselves were not immune to getting the disease of alcoholism or drug addiction, and I felt that they were a group of people that deserved help. After all, if you've got a doctor that's sober and in recovery, they're going to do a much better job than if they are still out there drinking and using. And so ever since that time, as a first-year medical student, I've had an extreme interest in the field and decided fairly early on to uh, dedicate my life to treating people with addictive disease. Okay. So I think that there's a myth for those that those families that encounter this and go into crisis. They think, okay, we're just going to find the best treatment facility and, you know, this thing is going to be a blip on the radar screen and it'll be over in, you know, 90 days, 120 days. Can you comment on that? Sure. Opioid addiction or what we would call now opioid use disorder in our psychiatric terminology is actually a chronic brain disease. And so it comes in waves, it has episodes. So you might have an episode when somebody's in their 20s and then you might have another episode when they're in their 30s. And the episodes can kind of be there for some time, for many years. And so yes, you might find that getting into a good treatment facility, working hard at recovery for 120 days, that the person, does manage to stay sober. But because it's a chronic disease, it's more than likely that symptoms will return at some point in time. 
but that's not 100%. I guess I liken it to having cancer. Some people have a bout of cancer. They get their treatment, they do their chemo, they do the radiation, the cancer never returns. Other people have cancer and they do all of that stuff and lo and behold, three years later, the cancer is back with a vengeance. So I look at you know, the disease of addiction in a very similar way. There are some people that are lucky enough to have one bad episode of it in their life and it never comes back. And then there are other people who will struggle with it for years and years and years. And we don't have the perfect treatments for the disorder. And therefore, there's no guarantee that we can keep somebody, quote unquote, sober or in recovery for the rest of their life. There are things that can increase those chances, but we have no cure for the illness in 2016. So that's, that's the basic bottom line. And your specific area of expertise is addiction psychiatry. That's a highly specialized area. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Addiction psychiatry did not even become a specialty until 1993. That took quite a long time. And if you think about how many people in the United States practice addiction psychiatry, it's a very small percentage of all doctors. So if you can imagine that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, 500,000 doctors practicing in the United States right now, about four to 5,000 of those doctors are specifically trained to treat the disease of addiction. And so that's a very, very small percentage. And there may be people that don't even know that specialists in addiction even exist. The other thing I want to point out is that there are actually now, as of 2016, two separate subspecialties. There's a subspecialty of addiction psychiatry, which has been around since 1993, and there's also a subspecialty called addiction medicine, which has been around but wasn't officially recognized until about three months ago. And so there are more and more doctors, I think, that are getting interested in this field, but for the longest time, you know, people didn't practice in this area. And so I'm very glad that now both addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry are considered to be viable pathways for a doctor that wants to specialize in this area. So what is addiction medicine? Okay, so this is a great question. So addiction medicine is basically a person that is trained in any other field. So it could be a person that is an internist. It could be a person that is a family practice doctor. It could be a person that's an OBGYN, or it could be a person that's a surgeon. So suffice it to say that a doctor in any subspecialty now has the opportunity to take an extra year of training to learn how to treat the disease of addiction. And so the content of what an addiction psychiatrist learns versus the content of what an addiction medicine doctor learns, a lot of the content is overlapping. The psychiatrist tends to specialize in those people with addiction who also have mental illness, whereas the person that's addiction medicine might specialize, for example, in a person that has alcoholism, but might also be suffering from liver cirrhosis, if that makes sense. So they might have medical consequences of their drinking and drug use, and that's where an addiction medicine specialist might step in. So one treats more of the medical consequences of the illness and the psychiatrist 
psychiatrist treats more of the mental illness uh, consequences of the illness. But, but in terms of philosophy and learning about the disease of addiction, our, you know, our content is very much the same. So it's just an, another opportunity for other doctors to kind of get involved in the field, doctors that might not be psychiatrists per se. Okay. So how does this all mesh with your primary care providers? Primary care providers are at the front lines, and they have a huge role to play in the early identification of the disease of addiction. Unfortunately, most people in our country wait until it's far too late and things have gotten to a very severe level before they go and get help. And so the way that addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry can kind of um, help primary care doctors is by teaching a method that's known as SBIRT. That's called S-B-I-R-T. And that is a little acronym that actually stands for screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. So here's the idea. Very similar to the way that we would screen everybody for high cholesterol, we would hopefully start to screen everybody for the disease of addiction. And so if you screen somebody for high cholesterol, for example, get a blood test and their cholesterol is high. So if you screen everybody, then you'll know, well, who are the people that are going to need a pill or who are the people that are going to need to change their diet or whatnot. And so rather than letting the disease go on and on and on till it's really bad and it's really hard to treat, primary care doctors that are taught SBIRT can be taught to make an early intervention on the disease of addiction, which might then prevent the patient from having such a severe illness that they now have to go see an addiction medicine or an addiction psychiatry specialist. So that's kind of how the two interact. In other words, we, there will never be enough addiction specialists to treat all the people with addiction in the United States. That's why we need the primary care doctors to be at the front line that are screening and doing early interventions on people before the illness gets worse. So does that mean in the future when you go and you have your blood work done? Say, and your physical, yeah. Right. So they'll also be screening for that as part uh, th of it. That, and that has actually been going on. There's been large projects funded by the federal government to demonstrate that doing that very thing in a general practitioner's office does actually make a difference in catching people early. Hmm. It's already happening. It just isn't happening on a widespread enough basis. So that's something that you'd have to request? Or would your physician do that automatically? Well, or are you trying to prompt him to ask? Well, it, it, all of the above. Right now, well, I wouldn't say right now. Let's say in the recent past, Medicare, Medicaid, insurances, etc., were not paying for SBIRT services. Therefore, they weren't getting done. Now there's been a movement to start to pay physicians and nurses and other staff people to actually do those so-called SBIRT interventions. And so now that it's starting to get paid for, it is slowly starting to get integrated into the larger system. In fact, I'm working on a grant right now with a large medical practice in Cleveland. And we've spent a year trying to implement 
expert into their daily routine with patients. Hmm. So I feel like that's kind of a way that I'm doing my part on the early intervention side of things, you know, so that they don't have to be so sick that they need somebody like me on the other side of things. Sure. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's enlightening. Um, so let's jump over to um, finding the right treatment facility. Right. Do you have some do's and don'ts as far as that's concerned or just a process? I think you want to look for a treatment facility that has medical staff that are trained in addiction. Does, for example, does your treatment facility have a medical director? Yes or no? Does your treatment facility's medical director have training in either addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry? Yes or no? So the answers to those questions might point you, you know, like I would want to send my own family member to a place where medical staff were involved in the treatment and where that medical staff was specially trained in addiction. That would make me feel much more comfortable. The other thing about finding the right treatment facility has to do, I think, with, you know, length of stay. So is it a treatment facility that will allow you to have a flexible length of stay from, you know, five days to 55 days? Or is it a treatment facility whose basically their shtick is, okay, we're going to treat you for, you know, two weeks and then our treatment is done. So I, I would be looking for a place that has a flexible, you know, depending on what the patient needs, has a flexible length of stay. And then I would also be very interested, particularly for opioid addiction, I'd be very interested in what the treatment facility's philosophy is toward medication-assisted treatment. Because there are some treatment facilities still in the United States where they don't believe that medication-assisted treatment is the way to go. And I honestly think that that type of a treatment center is behind the times. So abstinence is behind the times? Uh, the traditional... An abstinence... Is that, is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. An abstinence, a strictly abstinence-only based program might not be the ideal place for every single person with opioid addiction. I guess I can comfortably say that. I think that rigidity of stance that a treatment program sometimes has actually does more harm than good. So you think that medication-assisted uh, treatment is a better approach? I, I hesitate to say better or worse. I think what's important is that family members and patients are informed of all the options. Unfortunately, you can walk into a treatment center whose philosophy is abstinence only. They won't even tell you that these medications exist and are out there. That's not right. So you have to give people all the options and let them choose amongst the options as opposed to pretending that in 2016 that we only have one option and that might be to go to meetings and talk to a therapist. It's not the only option anymore. Sure. And I happen to believe that since this is a biopsychosocial illness, you need a biopsychosocial solution. 
And for me, the medication-assisted treatment falls under the bio part, the biological, because you're actually treating something that's wrong with the person's brain. In addition, I look at it like um, three legs on a stool. So bio, psycho, social are the three legs of a stool. And if you have a one-legged stool, pretty useless. If you have a two-legged stool, it's wobbly, still pretty useless. If you have a three-legged stool, it's very solid. You can sit on it. And so I like to see treatment programs that address all three of those issues. So for a person with opioid addiction, the bio would be offering them medication-assisted treatment. The psycho would be offering them treatment for depression, treatment for trauma, talk therapy. And then the social part would be getting them involved, for instance, in a 12-step program or some other program that would build up their sober support network. And without all three legs of the stool, I think a client's or a patient's chances of success are much lower. So that's kind of the philosophy I try to use in my day-to-day practice, which is let's not look at this as a one-dimensional illness. This is a multi-dimensional illness that needs multi-dimensional treatment. And for companies to put themselves out there as treatment organizations, but then to ignore one leg of the stool, I just disagree with that approach. Yeah. With MAT, um, aren't you kind of limiting your support, though, that you're, that's available to you for one of those legs? And by that, what I mean is many of the 12-step programs are strictly abstinence-based, period. And if you show up to the meeting and they find out that you're on medication, you're out on your ear. Um, what you said is exactly correct. I think that is a cultural artifact, and I think we need to start moving away from that. From everything that I know about 12-step programs, even the big book says that some people will need the help of other medications, and you shouldn't hold that against people. And so, to me, people don't seem to ignore that. Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson actually did say, hey, some people will need medications for their mental or emotional disorders or for other reasons. I mean, Dr. Bob and Bill W. could not have predicted 80 years ago that Suboxone would exist in 2016, nor could they have predicted how severe the opioid epidemic would have become. Remember, they were talking to groups of people that had the disease of alcoholism. And even though both diseases are sort of found in the brain, I think they can have very different consequences for people. And so again, I I don't know that 1930s AA is the total solution to the 2016 opioid epidemic. And I'm not trying to say that I don't believe in the power of a 12-step group. I think it is fantastically powerful but I don't think we can afford to discriminate against people that are using MAT. Again, I think that's doing our clients a huge disservice. Huge. And I know exactly the problem that you're talking about because I run into it every day. So I've had patients that I have on Suboxone, and then they are told 
you cannot get into this sober house because you're on Suboxone. So here, imagine that. So you're a person that's trying to get well. You're trying to get well from this brain disease that you have. Your doctor has prescribed you legitimately a medication for that brain disease. And then when you try to get some social help, i.e. a safe place to live, you're told that you're not welcome here because you're on that medication. That's a huge problem. That's brutal. Yeah. It's unfair. Yeah. So how do they get around that? How do they fix that? How, how does... Um, there are some places in Ohio and in Northeast Ohio and all around the country that are working on this exact problem. And they are trying to create a continuum of housing for people that might be on MAT. It's just that building housing in this field has been long overlooked and it's very expensive. And so, you know, there's, there's gotta be capital investment. You've got to build more houses and more of those houses have to be willing to accept people that are on MAT. And more of those people that run those houses have to be educated as to what is the purpose of MAT and, you know, why is it a good thing versus maybe a bad thing. So just those very basic pieces of information. So I do think that it's getting better. I mean, there are, I did eventually find a place for my patient, but it took about, you know, a dozen phone calls. And so if a family is running out of patients and running out of time and running out of resources and the door gets slammed in their face three times, they might just give up. So it's, it, that's super frustrating to me. So um, that we have to have infighting even within our own field. Meanwhile, people are dying on the streets of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County. And it, I just I just shake my head. I, that's not right. So, um, you know. So, yeah, there's unfortunately a lot of things about the system that are broken, but they're not, in my opinion, insurmountable problems. You just need very dedicated and stubborn people that are willing to pull up their sleeves and work on the problems. And I guess that leads us to our next question mm -hmm. about the system. Yeah. When we were talking prior to this interview, you told me that the system is broken. Tell us a little bit about that. The treatment system is broken. Gosh, I don't even know where to start. It's like a, it's like a, an onion. Once you start to peel off one layer, there's <laughs> more and more layers underneath and Lots of tears along the way. I'll start with parity. So back in 2008, because of the help of people like Patrick Kennedy and other senators and other congressmen and women who believed that mental illness and addiction ought to be treated in the same way as medical and physical illness in this country, they passed the Mental Health and Addiction Parity Act. Mind you, this is 2008, what is it now, 2016, right? Eight years later, eight years later, the feds have still not completed the final rule and have still not completely enforced a rule and a law that's eight years old. So what are the key components of that law? The key components basically are that you can't, um, you can't place limits on the amount 
of treatment that a person with mental illness and addiction can get. But that happens every single day. Check any insurance company's policies and it might say something like, hey, if you've got heart disease, you've got a $5 million limit on how much treatment you can get. But if you've got addiction, well, you've got 30 days lifetime and that's all you're allowed to get. Or if you've got schizophrenia, a severe mental illness, you're allowed to have 100 days in the hospital in your lifetime. Whereas if you have diabetes or heart disease or cancer, you basically get unlimited treatment. So what I'm saying is that addiction and mental illness forever in this country have never been held to the same standard as other illnesses. And that means people are not getting the treatment they need. And that means that people are dying as a result. How else is the system broken? So the other way I think that um, the system is broken, which is, in my opinion, directly related to the parity issue, is that we don't have treatment on demand. We have waiting lists. Can you imagine in America in 2016, if someone came into the hospital with their blood sugar at 500 and we said, um, you're going to have to come back in three weeks. There's a waiting list for you diabetics. That's no. like comatose, isn't it? Yeah. That's near dead. So for, I would say, most other diseases that can acutely kill you, heart attacks, asthma, diabetes, for most other diseases that could kill you on the spot, strokes, there's treatment on demand. You walk into the emergency room, you get serviced, you get connected, and you get treatment. What happens to the person with addiction? They come in, overdosed, they get woken up in the emergency room if they're that lucky, and then they basically get sent out without any connection to any further treatment. Why? Because there's a six-week waiting list. If we had treatment on demand, which would come out as a result of parity in the law, we would not have, I believe, we would not have the degree of problem that we currently have. Because a person with addiction, when they finally get to that point of wanting help, they want it right now, just like they want anything else. It's gotta be right now. And if they are made to wait a day, three days, five weeks, they're not gonna want it in five weeks. They're gonna be off and running. They're gonna be relapsed. They're gonna be doing whatever. So treatment on demand is another way in which the system is broken because we just don't have it. Now, if you've got $50,000 that you can spend at Betty Ford, yes, you can have treatment on demand. You can take a plane, fly out to California, write them a check for 50 Gs, you'll get in that day, guaranteed. Well, not all of us have that kind of resource where we can just slap down $50,000 for 30 days of treatment at Betty Ford. This is a larger issue. You know, this because yes, there people don't like it, but there's a two-tiered system of medical care in the United States for those who have and those who have not. Yeah. And so traditionally people with severe addiction have lost everything, which means they've lost their medical insurance. So they're in the have not category. And some people that have addiction are still in the have category and they still can't get into treatment at time, in time. Look at what happened to Prince. He died in his elevator while there was an addiction psychiatrist at his, at his side as he died. Yeah. I mean, they flew that guy in from California to Minnesota. It was too late. Too late. What other aspects of the system are broken, would you say, doctor? I think that there's just a severe 
lack of education that addiction is even treatable and that addiction even belongs in the world of medicine and healthcare. So for so many years, the disease has been marginalized, put off to the side, instead of being brought into the mainstream of medicine. Remember the thing I talked about earlier, which was the SBIRT thing. Mm-hmm. So right now, SBIRT maybe is being practiced in, I don't know, 5% of practices. Why? Why isn't it being practiced in 100% of practices? That's broken. You know, 10% of the people with addiction in this country are getting treatment for it. What's happening to the other 90%? There are huge gaps in treatment. And that's another way that the system is broken. I mean, so again, there's, there's just a lot of, you know, and some of this, I truly believe comes back to the issue of stigma because, and stigma can be very subtle or it can be very overt, right? So there are stigmas like, well, uh, since you did this to yourself, i.e. you started using drugs on your own, it was your choice to use drugs, then by definition, you are, quote, a bad person and therefore you are not deserving of help. Patently ridiculous. That's stigma in action. Pervasive out there. Yeah. 2016. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Right? So um, I, a very wise teacher of mine, I was taking a class. The class was called Mental Health First Aid. And Mental Health First Aid seeks to become as big a movement as uh, CPR. So you know how they were teaching, Red Cross was teaching CPR classes so that if a lay person saw somebody collapse on the ground, they would be able to restart their heart call 911. So mental health first aid is trying to do the same exact thing for severe mental illness and addiction. They want to treat, they want to teach lay responders in the community what to do. It's a wonderful class. I think it was a if I remember correctly, I think it was a two and a half or three day class. And I took it a couple few years back. And one of my teachers in the class made this wonderful analogy that I'll never forget. She said, you know what? Addiction, schizophrenia, suicidality, these are not casserole illnesses. And I said, what do you mean? And she basically said, well, when you get one of these diseases, Nobody is showing up at your house with some food to help support you. They are not casserole illnesses. If, on the other hand, you uh, had a heart attack or you had knee surgery or you were suffering from cancer, the entire community would be rallying around you, bringing you casseroles, bringing you support, asking how you were doing, bringing you flowers, sending you cards, Think about what happens to somebody that has had a suicide attempt, had an opiate overdose and survived, had a mental breakdown and lost their mind, but then went to the hospital and came back. Do those illnesses and do those people get the same treatment in our society? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so until and unless addiction and mental illness become casserole illnesses and we start to treat them that way, 
I'm not sure how it's going to get any better. We've got to rally around people that have mental illness and addiction and not shun them, which is what's happening. There's one more example of stigma that I have to share with you, and it has to do with obituaries. So, you know, I'll read some obituaries. I'm getting to the age where, you know, you read the obituary page in the newspaper. So you're reading obituaries and you see this beautiful young person, typically in their 20s, and it says, uh, died suddenly. And I, you know, for the last three years, I've been seeing these obituaries and I go, hmm, there's another one, probably an opiate overdose. Nobody talks about it. It is a shameful secret. Same thing happens when somebody commits suicide. So-and-so, 22 years old, died suddenly, survived by blah, blah, blah. If the person died of a long struggle with cancer, <clears throat> heck, a short struggle with cancer. 22-year-old so-and-so died after a struggle with cancer. We put that in the paper. We will not put in the paper that they killed themselves. We will never put in the paper that they died of a heroin overdose. That's changing. We did. I'm glad you did. Yeah. That's part that, of the issue that needs to start changing, which is people need to start talking about it and need to overcome the shame and the stigma. And, and that's what's going to help start to change the world, frankly. So, Yeah, it was very important for our family to make that statement and uh, to make it in Sam's memory and in his honor. So we did that. And that's actually what Cover Two Resources is all about. So. Yeah. Well, I'm glad there's people like you that are willing to talk about it because as long as we keep it a secret, how's anything ever going to get any better? Um, yeah, you hit a little nerve there, so I had to hop in with that. I love <laughs> it. I think that's fantastic. Um, so we spoke a little earlier about the fact that it's a family disease. So mm -hmm. let's let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. How to understand that addiction is a family illness. What that basically means is that not only is the person that is using the drug having problems and issues, that those problems and issues bleed over and start to touch all the people that are closest to that other person. And it's because of the negative behaviors of the person with addiction. Let's take a simple example. Many people with the disease of addiction, at some point, when they're deep into their illness, will do things to the people that they love the most that will hurt them very deeply. And you can think about it as cheating, lying, and stealing, right? So those are the very negative behaviors that a person who's in the middle of their disease of addiction will they will, they will perform those behaviors on the people that are closest to them. They will lie to them. They will cheat. They will steal from the very people that they love the most in order to feed their disease. And you can't keep doing that to people without having some consequences. And so you, you basically kind of, the person with addiction is sort of like a tornado that that rips through the town you know it, it kind of destroys not only the person that's inside the tornado but it destroys everything that's around um, as well and what happens to be around is usually that person's family okay and so the family starts to engage in behaviors which some researchers have called enabling behaviors or codependent behaviors that basically 
keep the person's disease going for far longer than it has to go. And so one simple example is um, bailing somebody out of jail. So there's a point at which I think a family member wants to um, help the person with the addiction not suffer. And so one of the ways they can help them not to suffer, for example, is by bailing them out of jail. But what happens is when you repeatedly bail somebody out of jail and you see absolutely no difference in their behavior, what you've done, unfortunately, unwittingly, is to help keep the disease going on for longer. And that is a very difficult concept, I think, for family members to begin to understand. Because from the family member's point of view, I was just trying to help. Unfortunately, since that person is caught in the tornado of addiction, the help that you're giving, whether that's money, bailing them out of jail, getting them out of trouble at work, that help that you think you're giving to that person in your family basically can enable the disease process to go on for longer than it has to. And so one of the things that people learn when they go into their own recovery, so I'm talking about friends and family members of people with the addiction can get into their own 12-step recovery program. You can find it at Al-Anon, you can find it at Families Anonymous, you can find it in some other support groups, Naranon, etc. So once you start to get as a family member into your own recovery, you learn to stop doing those things, you learn to start taking care of yourself, and you learn to start setting healthier boundaries. Once you start doing those things, the person with the addiction is unfortunately painted into a corner, or maybe fortunately painted into a corner, in which they are forced to get a different kind of help because they are no longer getting bailed out by their family. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Like I said, I think it's very difficult for some family members to hear. They might be very offended to hear me say that. Um, I think it does. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so that is super difficult to hear, is that the help that I think I'm giving to my family member might actually be keeping the disease going on for longer. And the other thing that's very difficult to hear is that I myself have been affected by the disease of addiction in very negative ways, and I've lost my serenity, and I've lost my peace of mind, and now I'm going to need help to get my serenity and my peace of mind back. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear that once I fix the person, quote unquote, once I fix the person with the addiction, then everything can go back to normal. I don't think so. It doesn't work that way. You know, once you've been hurt, once you've been repeatedly lied to, repeatedly stolen from, you know, that relationship is damaged, it might be damaged forever. And you're damaged psychologically from being in a very close relationship with somebody that has a very tough brain disease. So, yeah. Wow. We've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground yeah. in a short period of time. Um, what else would you like to 
share with our listeners, Doctor? Um, um, you know, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think that miracles were possible. So one of the best things about my job is that I meet people that have this really horrific brain disease. And with the help of medications, therapy, and a safe and sober support network, they can get their lives back. It's incredible. And so um, I see miracles happen on a daily basis in my job. And so I guess that's what keeps me coming back and wanting to help people is because I know that despite all the obstacles, despite the broken treatment system, despite not having perfect medications, people still get better and that there's still hope and that the earlier we treat the disease, the better. And that the more we help the families of people that have addiction, the better off um, those families will be. So I guess I want to leave the message that this is a very treatable illness. It does take a lot of effort, a lot of energy, but it's ultimately very doable. And there are people that, um, that have lives that they can't even ever imagine having as a result of getting into recovery. So, Great. Thank you, Doctor. Oh, you're very welcome. We've been visiting today with Dr. Delos Reyes, an associate professor of addiction psychiatry at the University Hospital's Case Medical Center. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for listening to our broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.